Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray, and welcome to my podcast, Going Long, where every week we spend time with folks in and out of the sports world, but all of whom share one passion, a love for the world of sports. My conversation today is with a very familiar voice. You may not recognize the popularity that he comes with because all the attention that you may give to Joe Buck or you may give to a guy like Jim Nance. But Chris Myers has been part of the national broadcasting landscape for over 25 years. First at ESPN, but most recently for the last 23 at Fox, where he has called football, the Daytona 500, and almost every sport on the docket. And again, he's one of those guys that kind of flies under the radar. You may say Chris Myers, and some will say, wait a second, I, how do I know him? Oh, he, do, oh, he does football. That's right. You may not get the celebrity attention that some of the other big names get, but he is as good as they get. He's been in broadcasting since he was a teen. You'll hear about that, how his career started back in South Florida and ultimately weaved its way through New Orleans and then Bristol, Connecticut to where he is right now. But as professional as they get, as good as they get, and has been involved in some extraordinary events, including the Olympic bombing in Atlanta, the earthquake at the World Series, and the first guy to interview. O.J. Simpson, after the murder of his ex-wife, the first guy to sit down and talk to him. Very intriguing to hear what he had to say about that. Here now my conversation with the very versatile Chris Myers. So, Chris, this is very exciting because you and I have known each other for a long, long time. Uh, I will share with with our audience right now that uh, I was a sophomore, maybe a junior in college, and I got an internship at WWL in New Orleans, and I thought I was the coolest kid on the planet because I was working for Jim Henderson. Little did I know that I'd be working in the same room with the (laughs) soon-to-become-legendary Chris Myers, and I don't think we really, I mean, maybe we said hello. I don't even remember if we had any relationship back in the time, but here we are some 35 years later on a podcast. Yes. Well, so thanks for coming on with me. Oh, no, glad to. I enjoy listening to you. And, you know, then our paths crossed again at ESPN, you know, during during some radio times. But, yeah, they you always pay attention to interns uh, because I'm the one they help you out. You know, they get stuff and they, they do things. And, and then you always wonder where their career, where they're going, you know, if they're. So uh, I, I'm impressed that you took that free, especially <laughs> especially getting through college in New Orleans. That's an accomplishment in itself because what it's a great party city, as as you know. But it's good to be uh, it's good to be talking to you again. Uh, you're impressed that I'm just gamefully employed some 35 years <laughs> later, as am I, much to the surprise of my mom and dad. But <laughs> it, it is amazing to see when I got to WWL, and I remember this, and I met Jim Henderson, and I met you. I'm thinking to myself wow, these guys are real television broadcasts. They must be so old. And you're only like a couple of years older than me. You, you were really young when you got that job in New Orleans. Yeah, I, got, I, was, a, I was 22, maybe. Yeah, and at 22 years old as the anchor. And Jim Henderson, guy from Syracuse, terrific guy. We've been there a long time later, did Saints play-by-play and, and retired in time. But I, I started young, Bruce. I started, you know, my, I don't know if you ever heard my story in radio back in Miami growing up, calling into a radio station. But I, I actually got a, I have my own show on weekends for a pretty good station, WKAT in Miami at age 16. Uh, and, I, you know, and, and, and then from there, work got into television and it was on TV in Miami at 2021. And then uh, New Orleans called and said, hey, Jim Henderson may be moving on to the network at CBS. We'd like to bring you in, you know, work weekends, and then eventually slide in his spot. That never worked out. But when I went to New Orleans and spent time there and had, had a terrific time covering sports, uh, ESPN spotted me and then hired me as a reporter and then followed that path through years of there and then on to Fox. So things happen sometimes not the way you want them. But as you said, as a young guy doing sports myself, I was like, wow, if I can get a radio you know, talk show, then wow, if I can get on local sports. Of course, at the time, we didn't have an NFL network and a you know, baseball network and all these channels. So all you had was like CBS, NBC, you know, even Fox was built into a strong network at that time. So yeah. uh, ultimately, you you take you follow a path along along the way. But uh, yeah, it's interesting how that worked out. Could that happen today? I mean, you know, we always we always romanticize when we were getting into the business. But I'm sure, as I do, you get people that you know reach out to you, and you know they're in college and they want to get jobs. Right. And I just try to tell them that the landscape has changed dramatically. There's networks that consume so much of the local airspace. 
And, you know, it's hard to go from being a producer to on the air today the way it used to be. I mean, it seems like it's just changed. Your story may not be able to be written today. Yeah, you no, you're, to you're to, right. You have to go to YouTube. You do it on YouTube to start <laughs> or something. Well, that's what I was going to say. I, I would say, you know, as some of those doors have closed, other ones have opened. The social media platform that young and a lot of talented young broadcasters uh, can use, whether it's a, a YouTube or a video or Instagram or uh, to, to kind of present their thoughts and what they're doing, uh, I think can open up a lot of doors. But then where do you want to go from there? Do, you know, as you said, there's still limited space, even with all the sports channels and now, you know, the, the big four networks uh, and, some, and some sports cable channels. But there's regionals if you want to stick to one particular sport. So there's a lot of paths. And I, you know, Bruce, like you, and I always feel like a lot of people help me along the way. Uh, as a young broadcaster that's through college and, and TV. So we, we kind of owe it back to, to young people, whether you speak at a university or college or they send you uh, questions. And, and, and to me, internships, even when I was already in radio and wanting to work in TV and going to college, getting an internship, as you mentioned, and, I, and whatever, and the earliest you can and getting in to see what it's really like and really applying yourself. There's different, there are different jobs in play and for them to see what you can do but yes, it is harder to go from off the air on the air, I would think, today, because there are so many either ex-athletes or former writers who make the transition quicker, easier uh, to being on camera and, and presenting whatever uh, product they want. And even internship programs are dying. I don't know what it's like around the country, but in New York, when there was a lawsuit a number of years ago, which I believe Sirius XM was involved in, that you now have to pay your interns. And, you know, when we were young, if they said get coffee, it wasn't offensive, by the way. I was right. fine getting coffee. If they said run to McDonald's <laughs> and get McDonald's, I was fine running to McDonald's and getting McDonald's. And now if your services aren't being valued, it's, it's, a, it's changed the landscape. I, I always thought, Chris, and, and you kind of said it, just being around it, kind of seeing right. how, how professionals functioned and just being in the environment with the equipment, there was something cool about that. And you picked up stuff from it. I was never bothered when I was asked to do menial tasks. And now it seems like, well, we can't do that to the interns anymore. Well, and yeah, and you would, I mean, and it was, it was important not to sound like some snobby, you know, anchor star or whatever, whether you were at local TV or, or uh, at the network, it, it is important if you, somebody, you don't have time sometimes to go get, uh, you know, a, a cold drink or hot coffee if you're on the sidelines doing a Packer game of the championship. So those interns, those runners, whatever you want to call them, they're, they, it is important. And the ones who did it well also were ones who watched and paid attention in the game and said, hey, did you notice this? And you can add that information or in the broadcast. So uh, that's where, without overstepping your role, uh, I think it's important to have to have any any kind of opportunity. But that's what helped me make the transition from radio to TV when I got an internship in in Miami, uh, and then got onto television, and then and then worked from there. But you know, you never forget your radio roots, and that's another thing I tell people too. That especially you know, radio has become so uh, successful with, with Sirius and a, a number of the, the channels and the broadcasts that are available today. The, the, the radio taught me how to work without a script, you know, how to stretch time, how to do interviews, how to shorten things up and hit a time and a clock and a buzzer and, a, uh, you know, hit the news on time or, or converse with people. And then, of course, TV, things get condensed a lot. But but it's really all part of the same kind of kind of media. Yeah, I, I think it's funny. People ask me what I enjoy doing more. I did 10, 10 years of television in New York for SNY. And I always say, well, I enjoy doing radio more because I lost my job in TV. It's whatever I have at <laughs> whatever I have at the moment. At least moment. you're honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. You, you people say, "Oh, you've transitioned." Well, I mean, yeah, that's because that job kind of went away. I, I had to move along here, so you yeah. go, you go where the money is. Yeah, yeah. They, they fired me, so I figured now I better say that I really like radio because it's the only thing that I have employment in. But you know, you started so young. I mean, you know, I always wonder. Like, I knew as a kid that I thought this would be a fun job. You know, I, right. I got. I've shared this story before on the podcast. Uh, I was one of the first people on the planet, I think, with a Betamax. My grandfather, oh, yeah. okay. my grandfather got it for me as a bar mitzvah gift. This is back wow. in 1976. And, okay. and somehow you could buy an external microphone, and I would plug it in, and I would do like Monday night football games with my friends. There you go. And, you know, it was fun, but I never thought, well, that's what I want to do for my life. I went to Tulane got involved in the local radio station, which you may remember was actually pretty prescient in New Orleans, but yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know it was going to be a career until I got out of college. You obviously knew this in high school. Yeah, I, and I knew actually before then, uh, two parts, and I'll try not to drag it out, but one, my, my father was a guy, served in the military, didn't have a lot of money, grew up in the Depression. We had a big family, worked two jobs, so 
he was big on pay attention to the news, the current events, sports, you know, that's for later, that's leisure. He was an anti-sports, but it wasn't a priority. So when I was in second and third grade, I, I was up on the news in the grade, but I was kind of lost when guys were talking about the MVP of the World Series or who was. So I ended up studying sports at that young age just to kind of fit in. Now, I always liked media. I used to stay up late night, beg to watch late night TV interview shows, anything from Johnny Carson, Tom Snyder, even during the day, I'd, whenever I would watch Mike Douglas, didn't matter who was on. Tom was Snyder, I liked. Chris, Chris, you're dating my Tom favorites. Snyder, you're dating yourself. Yes, but people <laughs> will remember uh, when he was imitated on SNL by Dan yeah. Aykroyd. Even that, even that is going dated. But I mentioned Tom Snyder because he, he, was, he was about the interview. He, he, the yeah. guest, he, it didn't matter. He was so good. He would bring out, hey, you're, you're Larry King, you've seen all of these guys. Of course, Howard Stern today is, in fact, in my view, two of the greatest interviews ever, Johnny Carson, Howard Stern, very, very different, but they, they they do a good job with the people they're talking to. So so anyway, from that, I kind of studied sports. So then it became when I was in the third and fourth, everyone's like, well, if we don't know, Chris will know. Let's talk. You know, he'll know all the sports. So I would listen in to a radio show at night when I was supposed to be doing my homework uh, and eventually called in. And it was before caller ID. I'd be Chris from Miami. You're only allowed one call at night. <laughs> and then I'd hang up, dial back as Duke from North Miami, and i disguise my voice. And I'd agree with my earlier call. So I'd get more airtime. This is... What a brat, right? So they had they had fan night where they at 5,000 watt station on Alton Road, Miami Beach. They were going to invite some of the regular callers down to the studio. They had like a, an older woman named Hannah from Brooklyn was a Dodger fan. They had this uh, Hispanic Orioles fan. They had a couple of uh, football. Anyway, so they invite us all down and I couldn't drive. My father had to drive me down between his two jobs, drives me down there and says, look, you got to tell them you're the same, you know, same kid, you know. And so they are. And they're like, wow, you got a good boy. You want to work on weekends here, kid. This is behind the scenes. So I was maybe 15 and, until I got my license, and then I filled in on the radio and got to do a, a Saturday talk show. And I remember them saying, your voice, said, don't tell, you have to lie, but don't tell them how old you are when they ask you about demand, whatever, look in your, you know, look in your stats and just kind of bluff it, kid. And I'm like, all right. So anyway, from there, it, it, it kind of developed. So I, I think what you were saying is I always knew I wanted to be in the media part and, and the people interview person part is what I love the most. And sports gave me the best avenue to do that because it became uh, so much fun. It wasn't the winner or the loser. It was the, and then on the radio too, I got to, at a young age, I got to, my, my first couple of interviews was Muhammad Ali at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach. And then Don Shula over at the Dolphins training camp. I mean, after that, wow. uh, you know, you're not intimidated by anybody. Uh, and I, and they, it always stuck with me. I wish I still had those, those tapes, but that was a while ago. Yeah, that, that's a pretty good story. Muhammad Ali and Don Shula. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's funny because I always remember when I, I first got involved in radio at the college radio station, when we ran a promo that, you know, everybody wanted to be a DJ. And it was like, right. listen, if you can't do music, you can always do news. And if you right. can't do news, you can always do sports. <laughs> I mean, it was it was the bottom rung on the ladder back then. Right. And right. now it seems to be what everybody else wants to do. It, it became the cool thing to do. But back then it was like, only if you can't do news, then you can go to sports. Yeah, I think that's how I was able to get in because there weren't a lot yeah. of people that were fighting for that for that gig, for that job. And you're right. There, every time you meet a, whether it's a, a famous actor, musician, they all, oh, why do it be so cool to call a, you know, when they try to, to sit in a, call a baseball game or, you know, a football game or a golf event or something like that. So so what was the first talk show? I mean, you know, I know what talk radio is, but you know as well yeah. as I do this, that, that, that it's changed. It's hot take radio. Yes, yeah. Debate, debate, debate. What was your right. first talk? Yeah, well, it was called what I, this, when I was a six-year-old, it was called Sports Line, and it was on uh, WKAT, and then later WIOD in Miami, which was a bigger station that carried the, the Dolphins. And then I did a little bit of WWL radio, but I was there mostly for, for TV. And it was mostly a, a call-in interview show, but at that time in, in uh, South Florida, in Miami, you had a lot of people that 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 just came through. You know, promotional things. Even even though you didn't have the four major sports, you had spring training. So uh, there were personality. I mean, uh, Howard Cosell going way back would would come through. Uh, you know, Merle and Olson, and these guys would be glad to the network would say, "Hey, come on for ten minutes and help and help promote what's what's going on." But it was what I enjoyed most about it, Bruce, was what I think we enjoy anyway. As you become a sports fan, or in the, it's really what you know. Uh, what I like about certain shows today uh, is I, I like, yeah, conversations, one thing and interviews, but I like to hear from callers across the country. And of course there we, we weren't as national, but to hear their voices, to hear what they had to say in South Florida and Miami, where I grew up with such a mixture of people from all over, you know, there were very few Miamians. They were from Ohio or New York or Boston or, you know, even, even out West. And it was a growing city at the time. So you had, and I had to learn and they helped me learn as, as a young broadcaster 
uh, about all of their teams and and how they felt. And I, you know, you couldn't relate to, you know, growing up in Miami, we didn't have the Marlins bend to a Cubs fan or a diehard Red Sox fan who suffered. Uh, so that was kind of the, the fun of it. I didn't realize looking back how that kind of shaped things. But I do remember this funny story. I went to Chaminade. It's a private school in Hollywood, Florida. Now it's Chaminade Madonna Prep. Uh, John Beasley, the linebacker, went there. They're, it's really become a, an athletic power. It wasn't back then. But I used to leave algebra class and run over as a reporter for the radio show. At the Super Bowl was there in the late 70s, back when you were with Betamax, in the late 77, 79, with the Steelers and Cowboys. Remember, we're playing each other in that little series. And I would go with a big tape recorder, kind of like, and I would interview Chuck Dole and, uh, and, and Tom Landry and Bradshaw and Staubach. And then I'd run back to the station. I'd tape some stuff for my show, but I'd also feed. If people remember, Pat Summerall had a CBS network uh, radio show, yeah. and I would uh, I would feed that into him, and he would use the sound bites, or he'd say, "Hey, our, you know, Chris Myers for the affiliate Miami, uh, talk to Tom Landry, and boom, or Roger Staubach." So, and that was kind of cool. That 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 that's what made me feel like, wow, there's there's a lot of things beyond just doing call. Even though I was happy as a kid calling radio or in college, uh, that I could I want to do more. There, there's much more out there to do. Yeah, the the one thing that stands out, and and maybe you'll correct me on this, is that. You know, knowing your career as I do, there really were not not many dips. Like I, I left, I worked at WFAN in the late '80s, and I left to go produce a TV show for you. Remember the Mislu Broadcasting Network? Yes, yes, I do. So I went right. to work when they launched a 24-hour news cycle, which ultimately failed because they didn't have money. And I was out of work for a year after that. I, in, I I went to do freelance at CBS, and I was picking up some hours at at New York Sports Nightly. But I didn't know that I would ever get back my foot back in the door. It doesn't seem like you ever had that moment of where you hit the crossroads. You always seem to be onto something else that ended up very successfully. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, 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 well, I think that I've been very fortunate uh, to not have ever, you know, a contract is up and, and the, the, am I staying or am I going to the next place to have that opportunity? And, and I think, I, I guess I had people looking out for me. Look, you know, you Bruce in this business and I tell you know, younger people now all the time. And I guess you can say this in a lot of industry. Well, at least in the entertainment sports, but you can be very good, work very hard, get along with people and still not get an opportunity, right? And still not get the jobs that, that maybe you're qualified for or that you would do well with. So you keep your eyes and ears open. You, you do get along with people. You have contacts. Uh, but along those lines, thankfully, yeah, from the local transition from Miami TV, from Miami radio to TV to New Orleans, and then ESPN giving me an opportunity to be the, their first West Coast reporter. They started the, this is how early in ESPN. In fact, we won the first reporting Emmy with a story on Tim Burke, a pitcher, all-star pitcher who adopted a child in, in the jungles of, of Guatemala. But, but so they had Jimmy Roberts in New York. I think it was Andrea Kramer in Chicago and I was in LA. Those were the first three bureaus with ESPN as reporters before they started using writers and, and expanding. And then from there came back to do studio work. Uh, and then through uh, what I thought the grow the, the golden years of ESPN the '90s, where it really was you know with Berman and, and, and Bob Lee and Dan Patrick and some terrific people, Linda Cohn who's still still on, uh, uh, you know Kenny Kenny Mayne. I mean, it's just a terrific t- people. But anyway, great to work with. And and so through there, then Fox is growing in LA. After I do the up close interview, I never planned on leaving ESPN. I thought I'd be there you know forever for as long as uh, they wanted me. And then Fox uh, got the NFL. They're getting baseball. They're like, hey, do you want to? You're out in California. Our headquarters are here. And so it was an opportunity to kind of do more. So I guess to answer your question is, I was always happy where I was, but when there was an opportunity and I fulfilled my contract, I had to balance out, uh, am I going to grow here? You know, uh, will I grow there? And what's a risk? And, what, and what's what's best overall? Uh, and so that's kind of part of it. And you got to continue. You know, Bruce, people think they they made it. They made it. They made it. You got to continue to work hard and hustle. I mean, I don't care at what level you are, whether you're beginning in radio or you got the you know the Monday through Friday gig in the local market, or you're on the network calling games, uh, and and that's part of it. And you get surrounded by 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 talented people that help you along the way at any level, whether you're starting out or at the network level. You know, I wanted to ask you about up close because the thing I've always enjoyed about what we do is actually talking to people, which is why I enjoy doing this podcast so much. Right. And in radio, you know, you get to talk to people, but ordinarily they're very guarded because, you know, they're a coach or a player and you got to be careful about what you say. When you come across the guy that you like, you're always like, well, I'd like to have that guy again. But it's also very short sound bites. It's eight minutes, 10 minutes. You know, after up close, you know, our attention spans got so small. Now it's changed with podcasting, but I I wanted to get to it for this reason. Uh, You listen to my show, so you may know this. I don't do a lot of preparation. Let's face it. I, 
I just yeah, but you're but you're a sports but you're a sports fan. You know enough to be able to to talk to people. No, I, I say that clearly, but when it comes to the podcast, like I'd rather know less about the person. It may be somebody that I've been friends with for a long time, like yourself, but I'm not going to research all the nuance because I'd rather be sitting with you and learn about you from asking questions and hear what you have to say about yourself. When you did up close, did you dig down? Did you were you over prepared for those conversations or was it more organic? Because I always find the interviews that go well are the ones that are organic. Yeah, and that's a good question. And it was, at the time, it was challenging because it depended who the guest was. Uh, obviously, the one of the most famous was interviewing, being the first to interview O.J. Simpson live after the wrongful death suit and the, the murder trial. And that took a lot of preparation because uh, I was going to have him on live. And that was a case that I, a situation where I wasn't going to talk about his Heisman Trophy and, and football. I had to do more. So that, that was, I was, so I was overly prepared. I mean, I felt, you know, studying for that, I felt like I was on, on the jury and I'd see it anyway. But, but generally I, I'm with you when you would have, and back in the day, Jose Canseco, uh, you read the head, you want to be informed on where they are, but I was always trying, even if it was, let's say a Joe Montana who, or Brett Favre, they were on a couple of different times. Uh, you kind of know them, but I always wanted to make sure that, Something new was revealed, and and my thing was then, Bruce. It's a comfortable. It's not sixty minutes. If there was if there was a developing story and a guy was on and we had to cover it, Warren Moon, for example, came on still playing, had a domestic violence thing, had to address that, but didn't want to. I'm not going to browbeat the guy. I'm going to have him give his side of the story, give the facts, move on. So you do a little research on that. But generally, it was a fun. I wanted to get to know people, and there wasn't the kind of social media we have now. Players with their own websites and the shows. This was their form. And a lot of them, what I give Roy Firestone credit for establishing up close and then me taking that over for four or five years in, in the, uh, through the late nineties, uh, because that's what was fun. We got to talk to people and, and it wasn't just sports celebrity or entertainment, you know, Billy Crystal and Bill Murray and Harry Care. You know, there were really interesting people that I tried to make it in a free flowing. It was live to tape, non-edited kind of thing. So that you would get stories and conversations so that I would get somebody to say, Chris, how could you ask that? I'm like, all right, well, sorry. I, you know, that's, that's the, you know, I, I read that. I, I guess it's not accurate, but at least we all know that now. So right. yes, a degree of preparation, but it shifted uh, depending upon who the guest or, or the, what the, the subject material was. How nervous were you to interview OJ? I was a little nervous because, uh, I, you know, first of all, there were death threats. People told me I shouldn't do the interview against me. They're like, you're putting a killer on the air. I'm like, that, you're missing the point. But anyway. Wait, wait, uh, hold, hold on. Let, 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 yeah. let me digress for yeah. a second because I think that's interesting. There was no internet back then. There was no social media. So how are right. people reaching out to you to threaten you? They called uh, uh, and left messages at ESPN and our and our West Coast. Uh, we had a we it wasn't a Fox. Um, excuse me, it wasn't an ESPN studio. It was a production studio that they rented to do up close on mm -hmm. Hollywood and Vine. Uh, and they said they sent in letters when we started to promote that we were gonna that we were gonna do it within within a couple of weeks. It was it was amazing. There were even fellow workers that I respect a lot, broadcasters at ESPN that that didn't want me to do it. That didn't like it. Uh, but that's okay. That's that's their opinion. Uh, the idea was we were trying to get O.J. Simpson had watched the show and liked it because before all of this, before he did what he did, uh, because he liked that people had, a, 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 as we were saying, a free expression and they weren't edited. They had a chance to talk conversation. So we've been trying to get him on. And then this happens. So then all of a sudden, years later, uh, and give Todd Fritz credit because he was our guest booker. He works with Dan Patrick on their terrific show. But he stayed at it, finally said, hey, would you come on and and so the, the two conditions his lawyer said was, OK, you can ask anything you want, except it's got to be live. And also, you can't ask about his children. And I said, all right, well, that's fair enough. Well, let's do the interview. It was scheduled for a half hour live. But about 20 minutes into it, you know, the headquarters of ESPN called and said, hey, you know, what's we're doing an hour on this. We ended up doing 50 something minutes because we had so much material. And, and O.J. Simpson was speaking. I don't know how truthful he was, but my goal was to let people judge themselves. I had facts. I could ask the questions. I'm not going to judge the guy and try to put him on trial on, on, on this particular show. Uh, but yeah, it was a little, it, it was a little nerve wracking in that this was totally out of, out of the sports realm of, of, of what I had done, but I, I'd covered some news stories before breaking stories or things like that. So I kind of approached it that way. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. I don't remember the conversation. So, so I'd like you to refresh me because you're right. You're going to sit with OJ for an hour. You're not asking about rushing for 2,000 yards with the Buffalo. Right. You're not right. going to ask him about being in USC. Nothing matters anymore in his life. It's not the acting. It's not being in, on, on SNL. It's now just about this one singular event. 
which he has to understand coming on the show. And I'm sure you have to make sure that it doesn't matter what the answers are. You have to make sure that people say, boy, Chris asked all the right questions. So, exactly. so re refresh me, like what you talked about for the whole hour. Did you start with AOJ? <laughs> did you do it? <laughs> yeah, well, I did. I did word it a little bit differently. And and yes, you're, you're right. The, the idea of, wow, we're going to discuss this. And I, I highly recommend, Bruce, if you get a moment, because when back when we recently had the, the OJ thing on television with Travolta and ESPN did their their series on it, uh, some of the clips were used. But you can go back and watch on YouTube up close 1998 OJ Simpson. I think you watched the full thing. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and it, if you look at it now, it's really interesting all these years later. Uh, what he said and what we think we know the truth is and 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 how people view things. So I, I highly recommend that. But but my goal was that I, I studied for this. I, I talked to Vincent Bugliosi, the attorney uh, who, who put Manson away, the prosecutor, yeah. uh, just to, to learn, uh, because some people said, in fact, they said he'll make you look stupid. Like he has certain people. He, he's convinced himself of certain things. And you got to be careful. Since you're on live TV, he'll take a question or a fact that you may throw out and twist it and turn it. I spoke to the detectives. Uh, I saw uh, more actual evidence than the actual jury got to see. Uh, Petricelli, the attorney uh, who actually won the uh, the wrongful death lawsuit, I got information from him. Later, had him on the show, but he gave me some information. So I, I was as prepared. I mean, I studied so much that at home, if they said pass the salt while we're having dinner, I would say object, <laughs> sustain. You know, it was ridiculous. So, and I did study. I did study a little law when I was doing sports in New Orleans as a, at Loyola as a kind of a side thing. So, but anyway, Loyola. so Wait, you, what are you yeah, doing at Loyola? Uh, I know I should have gone to Tulane Law. Couldn't afford it then. No. <laughs> so I. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I opened with kind of, a, you know, I appreciate, by the way, he's the only guest I'd ever shook his hand. But but he, I, I opened with just talking about, okay, uh, you know, you, the, you're looking for the real killers. Uh, can you tell me who, what, is there, a, is there a check you wrote or a company or a detective agency you called? He spun some, not, couldn't produce any evidence. Uh, showed pictures of, of his, of his well, talked about his domestic violence with, with Nicole before all of this and had pictures and said, hey, police were called. He was barely did this. And he was, I mean, it was so out of touch. He was, well, the lighting's bad. It's two in the morning. You know, that's, I mean, he, it was, and then, but listen to this, we're live for the first 10 minutes. We hit the break. We're talking about his wife. Uh, ex-wife being murdered and this and he turns to me and he says this is how kind of out of touch he was he said hey you know we got a, a foursome at Riviera but the guy dropped out next week if you want to jump in we could we could play a little golf you know and, I, and we have like a two-minute break between our lives and I, I was like stunned I'm thinking to myself are, are you kidding me uh, I said, well, no, no, thanks. I don't, I don't, I didn't really golf that much then, but that's, and then we, all of a sudden the, his PR rep comes running out of the green room and says, you can't ask these questions. And OJ's like, I, I got this, go back in there. We're fine. Uh, and then I continued to ask, uh, are you capable of killing? That was kind of the big question that, uh, dancing around, did you do it? Because of course he wouldn't. And he said he was, to me, that was one of the more revealing, truthful things. Yeah. He, he, but then he said, we're all capable of killing but i got into specifics about the glove and about you know the timing and things like that and and uh so you know to me there's no way that he didn't do it or wasn't involved i mean but that wasn't for me to say at that time that was for him but i i tried to lay out the questions along those lines maybe he had help maybe he didn't uh and and i think most people afterwards the reviews uh, you know at least from from people journalists were, it was positive i asked what i could ask and let people decide what they wanted to and at the end bruce he after this almost an hour, he just said to me, I said, I, I, I appreciate you being on uh, and doing this. And he, he, he he's, again, I didn't say it, but he said to me as we were going off the air, well, it's great talking sports with you or something like that. And you that know, I, I, I got to say, and I want to ask you about the reviews to it, but, you know, we all evaluate things from afar, but you were intimate with him for that hour. I, I get, and, and maybe you can answer this from that experience. I, I get the sense that he li he's incomplete to not like like it, he yes. really does believe like that's an alternative reality and mm -hmm. he doesn't know what happened to his ex-wife i mean that that's yes that's what you're telling me yeah and that's again i'm not a therapist i'm not a lawyer a judge i saw so that was my perception that either and he didn't he seemed maybe somewhat medicated but not drugged out but he's a big hulking figure i mean he can be imposing uh and and that was my sense that he whether it's narcissism, narcissism or what, that he convinced himself into that this was justified and that he really didn't do it, but it's all okay now because he's off the hook and everybody should like OJ because they always liked OJ. I mean, that, that was kind of the, the vibe that I was getting from him, that he was detaching 
that that really happened and that he was involved in that. And let's get back to it. So, you know, so I, he can get back to doing whatever, whatever he was doing, but there were a number of other things. That's funny. I haven't thought about it in a while or seen, or, yeah, I'm saying I, I really never, I only watched the whole thing back one time. Cause again, you always, you know, I could have asked this, I should have been more, I should have pushed here, but uh, you know, the, you, you do what you do at, at, at the time. And, and uh, again, ESPN at the time, John Wallace, the editor, was very careful with me to say, hey, you know, you're you're the host, the interviewer, but uh, you know, you're not the judge and jury. And I and I got that. At least that was it. But now that might be different today if, if something happened and you did that kind of interview. You know, it, it's interesting because you know you talk about the reviews that come out afterwards. But before we even get to that, was there a response from the public? They didn't want you to interview them. There were death threats. What just some of the, just, yeah, just some of the public. I would say yeah. who had that. What, what was the yeah, response but, after the fact? Uh, most people were glad that we did it. We're thankful that we did it. It got a tremendous rating. I think it was the highest rating they ever had for that of kind course. of show. And it got, as you said, it was before a lot of social media, but all of the other shows, I think Jay Leno even brought it up on the Tonight Show that night. He made some, some joke about, you know, are you capable of killing? I forget the punchline, uh, but Entertainment Tonight and all of those shows ran clips and they were there to interview me afterwards. And I, I kind of downplayed my role on purpose because I was like, well, let, you know, let people... Uh, judge themselves, you know, if, if if they watch it, and uh, but yes, and and those that that paid close attention to the trial. In fact, uh, uh, later a note from the Goldman family said, "We appreciated you doing this. We thought that you asked questions and things that nobody else asked that was fair." And and even the attorney uh, uh, Bugliosa said, "You you did as well as a, as a prosecuting attorney uh, could do in the in the case." So uh, and, and again, most of of the critics, even those that maybe weren't fans of mine or me doing it, they were appreciative of the job. They thought it was well done, thorough, and appreciative that ESPN gave us that extra time. Well, tell me this, because when I go into an interview with somebody, I don't want to say a controversial figure, but somebody who is not on to have the kind of chit-chat that we're having, you know, or, hey, great game this weekend, but somebody that you're going to have to make sure that you target the issues at hand. Do you go in almost a little more aggressive than you think you normally would be because you're trying to let everybody know that you can do this? Sometimes I find myself falling into that trap where like, you know, you want to be that guy and come across, yeah. oh, he, he really asked the tough questions. Were you like that? Yeah, no, I, I, I try, Bruce, not to be that. I mean, I, really? I, was a, I was a reporter, reporter before I was a host or an interview show. And I, the whole gotcha question to me, that just bothers me. Either ask a question or you don't. And if people don't want to answer you, you did your job and let People can tell. Again, it's a different story if you're if you're doing hard news in 60 minutes. This was a little bit like that. But I, I just wanted I, I number one, I wanted to be fair. I gotta tell you, I went in, you know, OJ to me was this entertaining guy who, you know, you saw him on TV and commercials and this great running before all of this. Yeah. That's how I thought of him. And I'd met him one other time, just to, so and you know, look, friends with a lot of people that we respected, and this happened. So I, I didn't want to judge until and then when I, the more I saw the info, it was hard for me, I gotta admit in the research and the preparation beforehand to, to, to not, you know, and I, again, I went in thinking he was, I, I was open-minded. Then, then when I saw the evidence, he's, he's guilty as heck, but I, I, I still have to try to be fair and ask the, the right questions along the lines. And it's funny because one of the, one of his attorneys who was on his defense team, who I got to talk to before doing the interview, he said, Chris, a very prominent guy, I wouldn't do it because anything attached to OJ Simpson is negative. Whether you win, whether you lose, this could hurt your career or you know, hurt, affect you in a negative way. Take it from, you know, a, and, and later he, he thought that I did a, a fair job. And he was on the other side of defending uh, OJ Simpson. Well, what did OJ say about leaving in the Ford Bronco and look, make it look like he was fleeing? Yeah, I think he felt that he was going to be, if I recall, and you have to watch the interview, unfairly uh, you know, uh, labeled as, as, as guilty already. I was like, well, this kind of makes you look even, yeah. even more so, but he thought he wouldn't get a fair trial or a fair shot. And, and at that point, you know, race entered into it a little bit, but we didn't spend a lot of time on that. And that's one thing in today's world, you might, you might bring into the interview a little bit more so. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that was a little bit sketchy too, about, uh, you know, the, the, the skies and the money and the gun. Oh, and he also said that he would, I, I think he's you know, depressed and, and, and he was upset about everything else and doubting himself kind of a thing. If I'm, if I'm recalling correctly, I think you'd agree too, that prior to that conversation, when all the, when the situation was playing itself out, I don't know that there was ever more compelling te television that I've ever seen. I remember Absolutely. being in Washington, D.C. It was the night of the Houston Rockets, New York Knicks game. Yes, yes. Um, I, was out, I was out at a bar with a friend watching the game. Then 
in the lower corner was OJ. And then they switched right. the screens. We went back to an apartment because we were like, we, we couldn't hear. And we had to say, well, what's going on here? It was some of the most compelling television that anybody has ever witnessed. And Chris, if you share my sentiments, I think we all thought at the end, OJ would not be here with us. I mean, is yeah, it, yes. what were you thinking when you were watching that? Well, I, I thought that, that he, uh, no, I thought that he would be corralled in or brought in or that he would, would own up to things because we didn't know all the facts at the time, but you're right about the compelling television. And, and Bruce, what followed that was uh, even to that, to that interview, which I didn't know. I know it was going to be a big deal, but I didn't know the magnitude at the time. And then the series afterwards, the, you know, the mileage of, but just the whole court every day, Lance Ito and, and Christopher Darden and uh, 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 everybody, every different attorney and witness and the, you know, must have quit the, the club, the, all of the, I mean, it became, it, it really was, it was, and who knows in today's social media, uh, the way it is today, how that might've affected things, but everybody was on the same subject. And that's why that show hit. And that's why this, because everybody was watching. There was nothing else that was even sporting events that would normally be important to us at sports because of the character that he was. Someone of this magnitude at, at, at this time being charged with what he was charged with was was absolutely. And then to show it all on uh, the court courtroom drama on television, um, it, it really changed, I think, in a lot of ways. It, it changed the way we look at the way uh, court operations are, uh, are run and televised. You know what I think is also so interesting about you is that you know, I think of moments in time that will never be forgotten. And you were part of one of them, having sat down and done the first interview with OJ. But, you know, you've been a broadcaster at Fox for a long, long time. You've done football games for a long time. You've done Daytona 500s. And I've always said to people, those don't create memories. They're just another part of the workday. But interviewing OJ is a memory. Um, you were, if I'm not mistaken, at the Olympics for the bombing. Yes, uh, taping. Yeah, taping it up close upstairs, uh, downtown Atlanta, when the bomb went off, and stayed on. We were the only one to stay on through the air because of our satellite coverage, ESPN, through the night, uh, reporting until the morning when people took over the networks. But uh, we thought there might be more bombs. We didn't know if it was terrorism. But yes, that was another one of those moments that quickly changed from a a sports center up close moment to breaking news or at least following news. Yeah. And I want to talk about that, but, and you were also, if I'm not mistaken, at the world series when the earthquake happened, were you not? Yes. With Chris Berman and Bob Lee, we were in the stands, the A's giants in 89. Yeah. So really, so really bad things follow you around as well. <laughs> is that well, what I'm we're this here? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, well and, and tragically, uh, yeah, you know, there, there were some good, but there were two other ones since we're going to mention these that Bruce, remember I've been around a long time. You, you brought that up. Uh, but I, I was at my first assignment, ESPN, covering uh, basketball, the, the tournament, when uh, Hank Gathers fell on the court with the heart attack. And then later at the Daniel Freeman Center, I had to announce with, with uh, Chris Fowler and Chris Berman on the air, the doctor came out in the family that, that he did pass away. And they said, and so he fell on the court and then they got him to the medical center. Uh, and then my first year of doing NASCAR on Fox was, was the Daytona 500. We've done so many since when Dale Earnhardt the face of the sport in what looked like a crash you could easily walk away from, you know, hits a wall and while well, Michael Walter wins and he dies. I, so, and it changes things. And depending upon your role, are you hosting? Are you reporting? Uh, you, you quickly shift into a, a different kind of, of mindset, but there were happy moments, you know, getting to Brady after he rallied to beat the Falcons in the Super Bowl, being there when the Red Sox broke through in 84 for the, for the world series to catch up to, you know, Johnny Damon and, and, and uh, the self-proclaimed idiots. So there were those moments too, but you're right about memories. There are certain things that just supersede what we thought were, were fun and games. So, so when you were down in Atlanta, and by the way, I was, I, I don't know if you remember my former radio partner, Bob Berger, who I used to work yes. with. Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Rye sense of humor. Yes. Real character. We, we were working together watching that Daytona 500 which, as you said, it was towards the end of a radio program, and we saw the accident, and it seemed rather benign. As you said, we're sitting there, and then all of a sudden, the story starts to grow and grow and grow until we learned of his passing. I mean, that, that was truly an extraordinary moment, because I've watched, I'm not a NASCAR fan, but I've watched enough auto races where cars are tumbling over each other and bursting into flames, and you know, guys take off their helmet and brush off their shoulders and walk to the pits. And this looked rather benign, and he doesn't walk out of it. I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah. And that was the hardest part. And, and not just for, but the people who I'm sitting with who've lived NASCAR and seen more races than you and I have were like, oh, this it shouldn't be, you know, you don't want to say this on the air, but it doesn't look that bad. He's not, he's just, we've got, seen cars right. catch fire, roll over. And, and then and then, and then getting him to that and not wanting to believe it. 
And then also, how do you announce that? You know, holding it back. Obviously, you want to inform the family. And then uh, we're on. We're supposed to be on the air. And then we ended up going off the air before the official NASCAR uh, president, Mike Helton, made the made the announcement. But it it uh, yeah, it, ch- it sent chills through. Uh, through your body to be around that. And then eventually it changed, you know, it changed the, the safety part of the sport going forward. And, and thankfully we haven't had something like that uh, take, take someone's life, especially such a great driver like Dale Earnhardt. Well, it's a good transition because Bob Berger, my former partner, is in Atlanta now. And I wanted to talk to you about Atlanta because, you know, you're down there for the bombing and you go from being a sports guy, I think to a news guy. Yes. And it's different covering a news story than it is covering a sports story. I mean, we all know what to ask when it comes to sports questions and understand what the framework is for that. It's different when it's such a brand new situation and you're not really sure what's going on down there. First of all, you got to be concerned about your own safety, right. um, which reporters never are because they want to be where right. the story is. <laughs> you're right. You got to go with the story. That's right. <laughs> uh, let me tell you, you know, I, I've always admired those that put on the helmet and get in a tank and go to the Middle East. And I'm thinking, right. but I'm but I'm not doing it. You know, right. <laughs> I'll sit here and watch it. Yeah. Here. So, so you were down there. You know, tell me about the transition from being a sports reporter to now all of a sudden being a news guy. Well, well, the background is we I had taped up close during the day, the Olympic basketball team and Charles Barkley. We're on the second floor of the Commerce Center down to really hot the summer in Atlanta, but kind of an open air. So I, I would wear the suit and tie. And, you know, it's uncommon. It's not common to uh, or it's, I shouldn't say it's not uncommon to wear, you know, shorts below the desk. If you're not standing up when it's so hot, you're sweating and you're changing suits and outfits. for. So we do that. And I'm still in the shorts. And then I, I'm doing the late sports center kind of tape a wrap around of. We couldn't use the video because NBC, I believe, had the Olympics, but we we would uh, you know recap the boxing or whatever. So we're doing that for the late sports center. Uh, and we hear this pop go off and it was late, uh, late at night. I don't know if it was after midnight or one, whatever the time was. But uh, I thought it was fireworks. And then I turned and saw, you know, police and sirens. And that's when I said, hey, this is serious. You know, we better, you know, stop tape and find out what's going on. And they were clearing the area. And I, with a cameraman, because we knew we still had the satellite, I just said, hey, I, you know, I think I had some excuse, like, you know, media, we're supposed to be here. And they're like, you sure? It's not, it may not be safe. I mean, no, we, we're all right. And they let us go. So from there, I was able to kind of wander through the streets that were pretty much empty and blocked off until, you know, they had security, eventual National Guard. And, and I just kicked into it. It goes back to your basic sports. It's not fun and games. You're talking about lives or a life here. Uh, what really it's who, what, why, what happened? Because at that point we were really the only source inside other than uh, what people, and we had some audio that people could hear and you could see people moving, but obviously you couldn't see the, the explosion. So I grabbed the notepad, even though I'm in a coat and tie and they're shooting me from above and ESPN, of course, with, with Disney and the ABC family, they, I didn't realize that they'd picked up uh, this for their news channels uh, on ABC news and, and the, all the affiliates. And so at times, I guess the camera kind of panned down and it looked like I was, you know, at a bad beach party or something. But <laughs> but I I would gather information with and they were very helpful, whether it was a policeman standing at a guard or a national guard or a medic uh, who was at one point on, on who might have been either heard or checked. And whatever little pieces of information I could gather, uh, I would through our producer, uh, we had Norby, uh, Norby Williamson, I believe, yeah. was in my ear at, at that time. We still uh, with ESPN. Uh, there's a, there a couple other people who did a terrific job, uh, but but they would say, okay, ready, we're on top of the hour, you know, you're going to go back on, you know, for five minutes, and we'll try to show, here's what we have, tell us what you have, and it was that kind of a turnaround, and and so it was kind of an unfolding story, almost like through the course of a game, well, here's what happened in the first quarter, so we know this went off, we, we don't know how many more lives, we know that at least I can say that a, a medic told me that there's at least one person being treated for, uh, you know, from a uh, bomb. There, there's some pieces of debris that went in the air. So that's kind of and uh, what's blocked off and, and the effect. So really, we went from that all the way through. I remember six or seven, eight in the morning uh, before they finally said, "Okay, Chris, you can go home." There, you know, the news people were there or go back to our little. Didn't even have a hotel. We kind of stayed at a different area. Uh, but but that was just you know a different time where. You just had to keep people, give them whatever information you could based on uh, what the people of authority were telling you. And not that they were all authority, but again, police, medical people, uh, even people who were, you know, their stores were closed by then. Everybody was kind of out off the streets at that time. And, and then if we had some video of information, I could describe where it was so people or what it was so people watching at home could get a sense of it. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a, uh, I, I was not, you know, you get into that mode and this is not bravery, Bruce. Cause if you go, if you said, Hey, go in there, we need you. That'd be a different story. I was already in there. 
So I, I just had a job to do. I didn't want to go running out of the, running out of there when we we thought we could present more information. And that's a little bit, you know, like the Earthquake World Series too. Uh, when that went on, you you know, there's no place to run. Once we're here, it happened. Let's tell people what we can based on on what's safe enough and the pictures we have. Yeah, I will tell you though. Going back to Atlanta, you know, I remember the story. Have you seen the movie Richard Jewell, by the way? Yeah, I have. The Clint Eastwood directed. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, and and we all remember some of the worst reporting ever done. Yes, yes, yes. And that's the one thing you got to be really careful of. And that's why, even then, in that moment, I was very. If you're gonna, if you're gonna say you got to, you got to attribute it to somebody, or you're the eyewitness. I could say I saw this, and look, they don't have a suspect. We didn't know at the time. They thought it could be terrorists or who. What you can't guess with stuff like that. That's not. Yeah, and what happened to him, his family, his life? Uh, it just, just, just terrible. Of course, that at that moment where I was, I, I had no idea that that was going on. That was all in the aftermath. Right. That was in the aftermath of the reporting of all of it. Um, so, so you sit here today. We were talking before before you got on the air, and and you were talking about doing something in Chicago, and I, I couldn't help but think to myself. I remember this is going back to 2006. I got a job working for Sprint the telephone company, when they were going to do original NFL programming. And I was working with James Brown, who was doing it at the time. And I had worked yeah. with JB in Washington as, as his radio partner. And I said, why are you doing this? You know, he was then host of whether it was C, I think, I think he had made the move to CBS by that time as the pregame, as the show host. And he said, you know, you never know when somebody's not going to want you. So you do as much as you can. And what you said you're doing in Chicago, it reminded me of that. We work in a business where it seems like if an opportunity is presented, we take it because it satisfies our ego. And we also don't want to feel like we're missing out on something. But you're at the highest level of broadcasting. Why do you continue to do more? Because I like uh, a sense of accomplishment and newer challenges. And you have kind of chronicled a little bit, Bruce. Uh, and I could be happy and could have been happy in doing radio my whole life, a radio show or or doing local sport. You know, the guys who've been there forever. You think of the no, Len no. Berman, the Warner Wolf, Jim you, 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 you wouldn't have been happy in radio. Right. Uh, OK. <laughs> All right. Well, but, but I mean, there, there, some people are. I, I just kind of was as as things have evolved, as we've said, there's there's certain channels and networks. Uh, I didn't get to do, by the way, uh, and it wasn't a dream of mine, although I always appreciated it because I like talking sports, interviewing people like uh, play by play. But because I, I saw the opportunity to do NFL play by play and some baseball that, you know, with, with Fox uh, and uh, people talk about, hey, you should you know enough about the game. I, I got into that kind of late and really enjoyed it. So there I guess what I'm saying is there's different challenges for as long as we've been in the in the business. Right. That that weren't there before. So yeah, yeah, you've done reporting. I'd still like to do that, sideline, Super Bowl. But, and it's not that you graduate or any job's better than any other one. It's what you like to do at, a, at an opportunity. But you have to as JV. And I remember talking to James Brown about this a little bit because he goes, man, you have more jobs than I do. And I was, yeah. this was back, I don't know what we we're doing because I was still doing some radio because you like it. You know, you, you enjoy, it's not insecurity. At least it isn't with me. And it's not really even about the money. It is about a sense of, of accomplishment. And I think we're the kind of business, Bruce, it's good to uh, stay in the loop on all all of the sports. You know, that's how you do it. You know, it almost forces you to pay attention. As a fan, you'd be watching, uh, but as a as someone working in that particular field, uh, you pay a little more uh, attention, and it does. It keeps your it keeps you sharpening your your skills, so you don't fade away or say, "Hey, I've made it." I'm you never you never cut corners. I mean, you still, as I said, you still want to hustle. Uh, not, not out of desperation, but I think really out of enjoyment and pleasure and, and the challenge. I, I still like a challenge of doing the Westminster Kennel Club dog show. I mean, to have an opportunity to do that uh, to me is, is fascinating. You study, you prepare, you have analysts. It's live. It's it's unpredictable. Uh, the dog show. The dog, the dog show. show. 145 years coming up. This show. I mean, it's amazing. It's it is uh, to them. It's their Super Bowl, just like the Daytona 500, uh, the World Series. Are, so and that's a, a corny cliche, Bruce. But I'll say this and I tell you, every night's the Super Bowl kind of always stuck with me as my own little slogan so that I would treat every story, whether it was a local high school or, you know, the guy going to the NFL or a Super Bowl. They're not the same, but but I would treat I'd approach them the same because they're that important to the people involved, and I want them to seem that important without sensationalizing, exaggerating, or or going too far over the top. It helped me kind of make it seem big and important because it was it is to me. You know, I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position, but but the network seemed to have avoided the trap of younger and cheaper, and maybe it's not always easier to get cheaper if you're not going to have the same level of quality, but. 
you know, we sit back and I'll use Tony Romo as an example. Who's done a great job on, on NFL broadcasts, but they're paying him what 20 million, whatever, whatever the number is, which yeah. is going to affect everybody else. Right. And I'll sit with my friends and go, look, I like Tony Romo, but I'm not watching the game because he's great. I'm watching the game because it's Kansas city, Tampa. And it seems right. like sometimes network executives have egos too. Oh, we want to prove that we yes. can pay more. What, why has network television gotten to this point where it's almost like the salaries being thrown out are as offensive as the athletes? <laughs> well, I think, and you'd have to ask a network executive because I've been around through 10, a decade at ESPN and then now two decades at, at, at Fox in terms of network and being around some really terrific network executives and then, and then some, you know, who maybe didn't work their way to the top the same way. But I, I liken a little bit of the Tony Romo situation to the, the quarterbacks coming up at the right time. Was Jared Goff really, you know, should he have got you know, Dak Prescott? Is he overpaid? Well, we need a quarterback. We got the right guy. He's current. He's here. We, we get, so I, I don't fault him or any broadcaster who can get that, but you're right. It does affect the chain of command. And if I'm Jim Nance, I'm saying, wait a minute, I'm doing all of this too. I know he's the ex-athlete, but where, where does that take it? It's up to the networks to, to iron that out. But I, I do see a, a trend of, even though we have the established, you know, the Troy Aikman, Chris Collinsworth, the guys at the top of their game that have been there and done the Super Bowl as analysts, there is that, well, who's the next? Is it Drew Brees? Is, is Philip Rivers? You know, Andrew Luck, would he be interested in doing this? You know, uh, what about, you know, is, is, is if Mike Tomlin or Sean Payton retire, would they be the next, you know, John Gruden or John Madden? So I, I think that's how, at least I've seen that or some thinking along those lines. Some guys, you know, look, remember, you know, John Elway, Joe Montana, they had shots at broadcasting, Bill Walsh. It just didn't pan out for them for whatever the reason. They maybe didn't either want to do it. They didn't enjoy it or their personalities. And you can tell after a certain amount of time who does the real work and puts in the time and the energy along with, and people like personality, spontaneity, having fun. It is fun in games for the most part, calling the game. But at the end of the day, your point is, it's what Shakespeare said, the play is the thing. The game is the thing. And, and really, unless you screw it up or get in the way of the game, I think that's what bothers people the most. And yeah. uh, so enjoy it and, and enhance when you can. Don't miss the big things, but don't get in the way of people, especially today with such great graphics, stats on the screen, you know, the, the replays, the, the natural sound. And there's a lot of ways to enjoy the game where the broadcasters should just not screw it up. So, so I'm not going to ask you to name names because I'm not Howard Stern. If I was Howard Stern, I'd ask you to name names. Yeah. But, you know, broadcasting always comes with a partner. Radio generally comes with a partner. I've spent and, and doing these things, I'm sure, much like broadcasting, it's like a marriage. You spend a lot of time with these people. Uh, I've been in partnerships where I really didn't like my spouse. And I wanted to get out of that marriage as bad as humanly possible. I'm yeah. sure you've been in that situation too. How uncomfortable, you know, have you been in situations? Look, guys get along rather easily. Yeah. But you haven't been, you haven't been with a guy that's like, I, this is like pulling teeth here. I don't know what I'm going to do here. Yeah, no, you know, not, I mean, I, I worked with some, uh, you know, Daryl Johnston, the Moose Johnston, uh, Rondé Barber, uh, you know, some terrific in terms of NFL. Uh, John Lynch, when he first started. Uh, through the years, you know, back Sports Center days, I did a lot of Sports Center with with uh, Mike Tirico, Linda Cohn. If we go back, I worked with Dan Patrick, some terrific people, Bob Lee, Chris Berman. Uh, rarely there was where you paired with somebody who you didn't get along with, some you didn't know as well as others. Uh, and and you're right about the chemistry. If it if you are there for a, a re, on a regular basis, it, it clicks. You're comfortable, and if it doesn't, you know right away. I, I gotta say, I always made an effort, and, and mostly they did too. And if it didn't work. It, it didn't last long. I just never wanted it to turn uh, ugly or personal or, or effect. There's the biggest thing because uh, you sacrifice what's on the air. That, that has to be first in your job. And then if it's driving you crazy personally, then you have to address it either with the person. Try that head to head. And if that doesn't work, well, then you have to decide either I'm out, they're out, or let's talk to them. Let's see what else we could do. Uh, but I can honestly say I, I, I've been fortunate that way through all the working partnerships uh, doing play-by-play, -play, doing studio show, even going back to, to the radio days of, of having uh, at least people that, that we got along enough. Uh, and most of them were really fun and really enjoyable. And I think people can tell that and it makes a difference when you listen to a show. Yeah, this is almost unfair. You've had no career adversity. You've had no <laughs> partners that you haven't well, liked. I mean, this is, this, it's, it's not even fair. I, I, but I've had, no, but I've had, there's been adversity and there've been <laughs> issues, but a, a lot of it's been behind the scenes and off the air and that, it's stuff that, that if you get on it, Bruce, you can manage it before it, it affects a career 
or gets in the way of people's lives. Did you ever have self-doubt? And and two things. First of all, did you ever have self-doubt and did you ever have jealousy? I will tell you that no matter who you are as a person, even I have looked and said, he's really no better than I. Why does he get that opportunity? Yeah. yeah. But number two is, and I've said this to a lot of people, Chris, we work in what I call the mutual admiration society. Right. That everybody around you, when something's done, goes, great job. What a great broadcast. And you really don't know the truth about yourself. So did you ever have self-doubt? And did you ever have jealousy? Well, yeah, there's a little bit of that, the envy, jealousy, and that it, it's not so much that they didn't deserve it, but or, or they're getting, well, why are they getting paid all of that when I thought I, you know, or, or they got that ahead of me? But I, I think the answer to that was, that, okay, what do I have to do uh, to make it right? Again, sometimes it's out of our control, no matter what. So, we're, But uh, that, that forces me into self-improvement. Okay, do I need to dial it back? Do I need to hustle more? Uh, do I need to work on this? Uh, sometimes it's just a bad break. Does this, does this mean that even though I wanted to do that, that my direction is more here? And that's kind of helped me navigate through, through my career. Now, you don't want to be naive and you don't want to get pushed around when you feel like you really deserve something. So you stand by, you know, you, you stay strong with your conviction. But I, but I think it, it should be less about the other guy and more about you. That's what I, how I tried to make that part of it. Um, the other part of your question was insecurity or doubt. Yeah, I, I think there was, I, I always was confident that I was going to work and, 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 and have uh, opportunities and be productive in this business to what degree I didn't know. And, and yeah, there are, there are some doubts, you know, you go, there were some doubts. Okay. I'm, I'm leaving a great gig in local television. That's well-paid for a reporter job on a cable network that's growing, but you know what, this is a risk. I, I hope it works out because I, you know, I've given up. And it did work out. And then there were some moments of, you know, going back, anchoring Sports Center versus, hey, do I want to do the up close interview show? And thankfully, you know, you have people in management that work with you on a choice or tell you, hey, here's what we'd like, but what do you like? Or here, we feel you're best here. So I think the more you can at least discuss those, uh, the better off that you are. So, yeah, there's always a little uh, self-doubt, which is probably why we continue to push in that sense of accomplishment that, that I was talking about. But I would say it's less self-doubt. Uh, more than it is taking on uh, the next challenge because it's it's something. And if you keep it new and fresh, I think it eliminates the self doubt, even if it's a little bit of a high wire act, or it might feel that way. So, so you're in your early 60s. I used to say to people when when I was young, yeah, I'll do this until I'm 40, because I always thought like sports talk was like <laughs> being a rock star. Like, yeah, what are you gonna do when you're 40? And now you see Mick Jagger and Bruce Springsteen, and they're in their right. 70s and still playing. So, so age is not an issue. But did you ever think you'd be doing it at this age, number one? Number two is, is it something you'll do in, like an athlete until somebody doesn't want to pay you anymore? And is that, do you need that for your self-worth? That's a good, well, that's a good question. I, I, I always thought I'd be working in some form. I, I didn't know what to what in the business for a long time. Because I remember, well, and you're right, by the way, they, I, my new thing is the 60s, the new 40. Okay, just, just <laughs> yeah. so you know. I, I'm kind of stuck in that. I told, <laughs> and my, joke, my joke is I, my, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to pre preserve my looks. So I went to cryogenics to have free, and they froze my career as <laughs> well. So uh, yeah, but I'm look stuck at in you. So you look great at 60. So, all right. Well, thank you. But that, that's always when, when people apply the age to you look great, but then it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's half and half. But I feel, I do. I feel fortunate to still be, that people still are interested. Uh, that I still enjoy the job, that there are opportunities out there for the kind of media we have today in, in all the forms that we've, uh, that we've talked about. And uh, I, yeah, I don't want to, you know, you don't want to hang on and not be good at your job or as good at the end. And so it's a little bit when I watch athletes, and I'm sure when you pay close attention to, you know, when they retire or how they retire, it's a totally different thing. But still, you're just kind of attaching yourself to like, when will I know? And I see other people retire in the business uh, in our business, not other businesses, because ours is, is unique in, in how exciting and, and fun it is. And, and I just don't think they're as happy or they're as enjoyable. So I think there's a phase, there's a part with your family and what you want to do. I have hobbies, but a lot of them relate to what we do in sports, you know, whether it's playing them or watching people or talking to people. So I, I think there's a phase where you ease into just doing less. You can teach, you can consult, you can stay active in, in terms of some some form. Uh, but I, but I think I, you know, maybe less travel in the world today has made it, uh, made it an opportunity for us to do that. But I, I, I think easing into maybe less. Uh, but even then, I would still want to do it and be excited about it if, if I'm still sharp enough to do it. Because I, I you know, I, I, I've watched Vince Scully, my God, he, and even he made the call on on stepping away in his 80s. I mean, after having one job his entire career and being good at, still being so good at. And I'm sure you saw the interview since he's left. He doesn't miss it. Yeah, that's you know, it. So he, has, that's, he has said yeah. he got rid of all his memorabilia. 
He right. gave it all away, and he doesn't really watch, but and he doesn't miss it. And I've often wondered if I could do it because whether we want to admit it out loud or not, Chris, you know, it's kind of who we are. It defines us. Yes, so yes, people, it does. When people find out what you do. They go, "Oh, wow, that's really cool." You're like every kid's, you know, fantasy, right. and you know, it, there's a self worth in that. So I, I wonder yeah. how much that's needed, you know, for your survival. Yeah, and you're right. Johnny Carson said it years ago that, that in America, a man is his job. And that always that always stuck with me. And, and the key with Scully, and you hit on it, is that he he didn't miss it. He he got to make the call. And I'm sure some athletes go through this at the very highest level. We'll watch Tom Brady, but you're still good. And you still like it. You do it. And when you're ready, you'll you'll know or people will push you. But then when you get away, if you don't miss it, then then you made you know, you made the right kind of decision. And I I also read something. I'm not sure who said this, but we we are not our age. We are our energy. And that stuck with me because I used to, you know, as I was telling you, starting out as a young guy, a teenager, when they didn't want me to tell people how old I was, you know, just talk and be a, you know, now you get to the other age where, you know, you're, you're talking to younger people or like some people just say, well, he's this age and we need to move along. We need to get younger. We need to no, you, you need to, you know, you need to go with who the best person is doing the job is, is the way I always looked at it. So so it's age is a number. And if you, your energy is you. And like you said, in our business, we so much identify with our job because it is fun. And it's and it's something we do even when we're not working. We're kind of working because we like it. All right. I, I got to let you go in a second. But, you know, this podcast is for people that are in the world of sports, out of the world of sports. But we all share one thing in common. That's a passion for the world of sports. And, you know, the one thing I've known about myself, and I wonder if it applies to you, is that when you work in this business, the passions that you had as a kid, as a fan, which I don't know if you had, because you said you were just trying to learn to keep up with the guys in the cafeteria. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of wane, you know, they kind yeah. of wane over time. I, I was a huge Giants fan growing up. I'm still a Giants fan now, but, you know, the people that call my radio show, they don't sleep after their team loses. I sleep <laughs> right. fine after the Giants lose. Maybe the only team right. that keeps me up at night is the New York Islanders. Were you a fan? Have you ever been a fan of the game other than the game, if you know what I mean? Yes, no, oh, absolutely. And I still, uh, and what, what's changed for me over the years, I'm still a diehard fan of teams. And I'll tell you my, my local team story or the one that I rooted for as a kid. But I, I end up, you know, this from talking to people and athletes, you end up rooting for people. You meet guys. And so even though I didn't root for that team or I was a kid, I don't like that team as a kid, I meet this guy and like, I want him to do well. So you're, totally. you really do. Yeah, you connect there. I was a, believe it or not, and Don Shule even said this to me one time when I was interviewing him in Miami. He's like, why are you on the Rams bandwagon? But as a kid in Miami, I, I, for, I, just uh, watching TV before when I studied sports, like I told you in the third grade, uh, the Rams, that you know, the helmet, uh, I was an Aries Zodiac sign. My sister said I was a Ram. I connected to the Ra LA Rams. I'm going to go to LA one day. So I became an LA Rams fanatic. I mean, when I studied, so I was such a fan and my family thought I was, was a nut. I, when they would lose, I would lock myself in the bathroom. It wouldn't come out for dinner. And I, I'm like, where's Chris? Like, the Rams lost. So let's just eat and he'll be out in a few hours, you know? So I, and I, I had just attached myself, even though they're thousands of miles away as this, you know, this third or fourth grader. And so uh, through the years, but that, that part, you have to be a little more mature. And then I became a Dodger fan and then, you know, Laker fan. And there was, a, so you, 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 you know, so, but that taught me a lot about, and then of course, as I told you, listening to phone callers in Miami, the mixture of, of people from different places, the passion and, and the feeling. So yeah, it's sad that that phase, that part for that particular team, but I still have it for, uh, for events, for, for players, as we said, for, for teams. And, uh, you know, you never forget that loyalty. And what, what gives me a, you know, when I don't sleep at night is after a broadcast, right. I thought that I didn't do as well, or we didn't do as well, either calling the game or in the interview. And, you know, that, that's the part that, you know, that, that's kind of your job, but also it's as a fan, I'm like, man, I, I really should have asked that for people to hear, you know, or followed up on that, or I, I really should have called that been more clear. Uh, those are the kind of things that still uh, keep me up at night and you can't have a lot of them or else you, you don't keep your job. And I agree with you, by the way, I have a rule when we wrap up a radio show, you know, the, the, the tradition is radio producers go great show. And I'm like, you can't say great show. If it's a great show, right. what was it yesterday? I know when it was a radio show and I know when it was bad and the bad right. ones do keep me up and they're not, they're not that often, but you know, when you haven't done a good show and you know, That's when right. you haven't done a good broadcast. 
Yeah, and you, like, for example, currently you're doing NASCAR, the pre-race show. Jeff Gordon, Clint Boyer, we're out live. There, there, there's no script, prompter. You're uh, it, it, Behind the scenes, a lot can be going on. You know, you're, he's in your ear. We don't have tape stretch or, or the video. The camera went out here. And, and so it feels rough and rocky. Either, you're even call, and then later you make sure you watch back what you go, okay, I, I know it wasn't our best, but at least the viewer didn't know the chaos that was going on because we all pulled it together. And so then you're, you're okay. I can, I, I'll sleep better tonight. But yes, when they sometimes they'll say, "Great show," uh, I was like, "Well, it was okay." There's some things we got to work on, you know, without being without complaining. Because you're right. If everything's a great show, you're not going to get better, and you and you'll miss the things that you got to correct. And and we are in the communication business. I think that's an important thing to always remember. Yeah, uh, I got to let you go, but I, I will say it's. I'd like to call it a friendship. We've no, we've yes, been, we've had a friendship for, let's see, 1983, which means we're okay. both old. Uh, that's number one. So I'm not going to say you look great for 60 because you just look great in general. <laughs> well, thank um, you. But but it's a friendship that's endured for a long time. And I generally I genuinely think you're like one of the broadcasting good people. This is a business that's driven by people with egos. And uh, I think whether it's whether you check it on your own and you have it, but it's buried well, you play it very well. And I've always admired that about you. I really have. Well, th thank you. No, and through the years, even if we don't see each other, years go by or communicate. When we do, there is a, there is a friendship. And yeah, when you come, you come from a big family and your own family members, they, they always make sure that your ego is in check. And <laughs> yeah. that, that, that helps you no matter how much of people appreciate uh, your work. But I, I enjoy, this was a fun conversation uh, at any time, because I, yeah, I enjoy listening to you on the radio as well. All right. Great, great talking to you, Chris. Good talking to you. Bye. Right, you take care. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Chris Myers, a man who, again, I think has carved out a spot in broadcasting that is largely unappreciated with the attention paid to others, but the job that he has done for such a long time at Fox. And really, really interesting to hear the part about the interviewing of O.J. Simpson. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, I know that I did. We launch a new episode every Thursday. You can get it on the SiriusXM app or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you'll join me again next week. I'm Bruce Murray.